Hey y'all, and welcome back to Thinking and Drinking. Today's episode is going to be super low-key because <laughs> this past week has not been great physically or in terms of the mental health space, so we're just going to chill for a little bit. I promised you a bit of a talk about the outlaw country music genre and the worst student paper that I ever graded. You're going to hear about that and also a little bit of uh, the time that I went to Nashville with some Vietnam veterans. At the end, I'm going to give a couple of recommendations about, uh, about some musicians whose work I happen to enjoy. So that's that. Kick back, relax, pour yourself a beverage, and let's get to it. some of you may know, I taught undergraduate English classes at my university while pursuing my master's degree. Some of my students might even still be listening to this, so um, if that's any of y'all, hey, I hope you're doing alright. Uh, re in regards to some of my English classes, I had the privilege of teaching some excellent students from all walks of life, and as a result, I got to read some phenomenal writing. Maybe it wasn't the most polished, but it was evocative and eloquent nonetheless. And then came spring 2020. Most of the final papers for that quarter were actually pretty great for all, all things considered, but there was this one paper that brought a whole new definition to the expression piece of work. In this paper, the student proceeded to abandon all pretense of a scholarly veneer and instead decided, you know what, and actually wrote this in their paper, I'm not going to do the assignment, but I'm going to write about something else instead. And they managed to present me with a polemic about the disasters befalling America today. Something, something, grumble write bitch about Antifa and rioting and how the coronavirus was something really minor that would pass in a few months and we were really getting our panties in a bunch over nothing. I'm paraphrasing, but you get the idea. Now, I was recovering from a minor case of the virus, so maybe this was not the best tack to take, but the student just jumped right in with both feet. If you thought all that was something, here's the clincher. And the clincher was something to the effect of how would the man in black, that is Johnny Cash, how would the man in black react if he saw the country he loved so much burning? Let me tell y'all something. I almost went all Samuel L. Jackson up in that piece. My spiritual ancestors, those generations of disgruntled, tired, overworked Navy non-commissioned officers, rode my soul with furious effort and demanded that I tear this individual a new one with a chainsaw. But believe me, 
I do take my paid job seriously, so I restrain myself. Believe me, I wanted to respond so badly with what the fuck, but I didn't. I wrote some feedback that was polite, but very pointed. I graded the paper according to its contents, and I moved on, shaking my head in disbelief. I did tear him a new one, but I went about it with a scalpel instead. And here's how, here's why, how, here's why, um, the part of my family that I spent my formative years with is composed largely of blue-collar working-class people. I was born and lived until the age of 10 in the Central Valley of California, which for those of you who aren't familiar, that is agriculture country. Think garlic, raisins, stuff like that. I might have listened to oldies in my stepdad's truck and classical music in my grandmother's store. Still do, by the way. Um, but I also happened to listen to a lot of folk music and quite a bit of country music, too. I learned from Shania Twain not to be swayed by a man's looks or his money. And my Girl Scout troop, yes, I was a Girl Scout, we performed an interpretive dance routine to Garth Brooks's song, The River, one warm summer night by our troop leader's swimming pool for an audience composed largely of our family members. And don't at me, this was the 90s, we did weird shit like that. Yeah. I moved out of that area and my tastes changed, but no matter how much time passed, country music, and especially the outlaw genre of country, gave me a tie back to my family, especially to my birth dad, who told me that he passed the time on his deployment to Vietnam in his mid-twenties, listening to hours-long reels of his favorite tunes in his bunk. He fondly remembered getting to see Johnny Cash perform live in San Bernardino. That was his favorite concert that he'd ever been to. And we both agreed that we would have loved to be a fly on the wall when Live at Folsom Prison was recorded. My dad laughed when I told him about the time that I got to volunteer to work security at Willie Nelson's Family Picnic, a big concert outside of San Antonio. And... After that, I got to go sit on the lawn and watch the concert for free, and I was so enraptured by the experience that I didn't even realize that I was getting such a bad case of heat rash that my legs would be blistered for days. That said, he and I agreed that the sunburn and the heat rash, those were so worth it. Coincidentally, the army unit that my birth dad belonged to when he was in Vietnam they were a unit developed, uh, tasked with developing aerial combat tactics for use in later military engagements. That unit was nicknamed the Vinlong Outlaws. The Outlaws, they held reunions on a regular basis, and I was lucky enough to be able to tag along with them when they went to their reunion in Nashville in 2010. Now, my dad, he didn't want to fly to Nashville. Well, he didn't like flying, period, for obvious reasons. So he took the Greyhound bus, and his bus was delayed, and he actually missed the first day of the reunion altogether. And because of that, I found myself in the atrium lobby of the 
of the uh, Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum. I was there at a, at a catered brunch surrounded by a bunch of strangers, some of whose names I had only heard in stories, maybe, and otherwise I didn't know them from Adam. However, my birth dad's former commanding officer, he recognized me from stories that my birth dad had told about me, and immediately took me under his wing to put me at ease. He asked me what I wanted to drink, and I said, uh, well, um, I probably better not because my dad's going to get wind that I was drinking, well that I, well, that I was drinking, and he's going to lecture me about getting throat cancer and dying. And CO thought about that for a minute and said, he won't hear about it. What do you want to drink? And he ordered me a mimosa to go along with my food and promised that my birth dad would not hear that I was drinking before noon. Later on throughout that weekend, we toured the sites of Nashville and we soaked in the history and the ambiance. We saw Dolly Parton perform live at the Grand Ole Opry and I remember happy crying over the strength and clear beauty of her voice. My dad humored me when I insisted on ducking into hat show print so I could pick up a Johnny Cash poster. And uh, we may have paused at Tootsie's Lounge as a way to escape the zombie crawl that was going on down the main drag while we were there. Yeah, uh, it was, it was uh, about that time of year and there was a zombie event. So we ducked into Tootsie's for an afternoon refreshment and to get away from the out from the uh, shambling groves of undead. As we sat there and drank our beverages, the bartender regaled us with stories of the many, the many country music icons that had stopped in at Tootsie's. And upon hearing me hearing that I was a Willie Nelson fan, they regaled me with stories about the times that that Willie had uh, patronized that particular establishment and how. He actually had played on the upper floor and may have actually slept on the floor at some point. And I sat there and listened to these stories with wide-eyed wonder and my dad just grinned ear to ear. Now, something to think about, my birth dad didn't really ever talk very much about his time in Vietnam. And I kind of get why. Hanging out with all of his buddies in Nashville, looking at slides and photos and hearing stories, that was the closest I ever got to understanding what his life was like at that point. And it was only when I went through military survival school several years later that I understood the very real danger that he had been in during his tour of duty. And maybe this realization was why I got so particularly incandescently angry when I saw my students piss poor interpretation of Johnny Cash. I read this paper about four months after my birth dad had died, and a few things became pretty obvious. I realized when I read that paper that this student was viewing and interpreting Johnny Cash through the lens of Ragged Old Flag and his various gospel recordings. This student would not know what it would be like to be a former college student from Tulare County, California listening to country music in his bunk at night because it reminded him of a home that he might not get to return to, or if he did, he would return to it in a box. This student would not 
feel a visceral gut punch on hearing the lyrics to singing in Vietnam, talking blues, and realizing, yeah, this was my experience. And oh yeah, the message of the very damn song out that this student referenced, Man in Black, it had clearly sailed right over his damn head. This kid, and he certainly was a kid, had tried to cherry-pick the aspects of a complex personality and musical career to suit his own ideological leanings, and, uh, well, you can tell how well that went over. It landed like a big old greasy cow patty. The very, 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 very small part of me that insists on being charitable tells me that maybe this kid didn't know any of Johnny's history. The prison concerts, or the time that Mr. Cash was so intoxicated that he caught his camper trailer on fire and burned down part of a, nat of a nat national forest. This student most likely hadn't, hadn't heard of his activism on behalf of Native Americans, either. You see, the myths that we tell ourselves about our heroes tend to be selective. And who knows, maybe this kid just hadn't taken the time to learn these things for himself. The flip side, though, is that sometimes we choose to leave things out of the myths that we construct because these things, they make us uncomfortable. That weekend in Nashville, I learned that my birth dad, one of my heroes, had shot a woman dead in a rice paddy because the rule back then was to kill them before they could kill you. It is unsettling as fuck to know that one of your parents killed someone. Even though he was in the army in a time of combat and those kind of things tend to happen, it is hard as hell to reconcile that with the image that I had in my mind of the big bearded giant who taught me how to play solitaire. Who put a canopy up over my bed so that I could feel like a princess. And who put a little radio up in my bedroom so uh, up in my bedroom window, where it got the best reception, so that I could listen to the local country station while I was visiting him at his house up in the mountains. So, while I know that the darker parts of his history are there, I choose to leave them out even now, because they are really, really hard to balance. The image that's been constructed of country music, even of the so-called outlaws, does this, too. leaves out a lot. It ignores the fact that the Old West wasn't as white as pop culture tends it to be, how it tends to portray it to be, that the word buckaroo was likely a play on the Spanish word vaquero, and that many cowhands were black. Country music at its roots borrows from the poor and the disenfranchised, from black and Mexican culture, and even, in some cases, from queer culture, like Sister Rosetta Tharp. Holy cow, that woman could shred, and she, you know, she inspired Johnny Cash and many others. Country music borrows from hillbillies and farm laborers, some of whom hailed not too far from where my family is from in Central and Southern California. And all of this is something that many American listeners choose not to think about because it just doesn't fit in with the image that they have in their mind of the American folk history. The story that omits black slavery and the brutalization of native tribes. And things like domestic violence and substance abuse. Because all of these things are things that upright good Christian folk just don't do. Am I 
right? Another thing. It's easy to forget that the outlaw music movement happened roughly at the same time as the American Civil Rights Movement of the 60s and 70s, but if you were to look at the actual content of some of the songs that came out of Nashville at that time, you could see that these musicians earned their moniker of outlaw because of their stubborn desire to produce music with raw, unpretentious sound and honest messages, unlike the slick, mass-produced, pop-appeal music that was being put out at that time. The artists of outlaw country were as much a voice of the era as any other, and no amount of whitewashing can change that. Now, back to the student. If I'd had my druthers, I would have given them a failing grade on that paper which would have caused him to fail my class as well. But, as I said, I was recovering from a mild case of coronavirus. I was tired and angry and grieving, and I just wanted that damn paper out of my inbox before I said something truly regrettable. I don't even remember that student's name, and I don't particularly care to, so that's that. Now, as irked as I was by this whole kerfuffle, it did get me thinking about the nature of what makes an outlaw in the societal sense. Paraphrasing from Webster's Dictionary, an outlaw is a staunch nonconformist who refuses to follow societal rules or expectations. It's more of an ethos, kind of the way that you act and the things that you believe rather than an explicit codified persona. Let me tell you something, if you are acting within the accepted ways of a system that was built to benefit people like you, <laughs> you sure as fuck are not an outlaw. You are just like that idiot at the 4th of July barbecue wearing American flag print shorts because like, they like to cover their dick with fake patriotism. Now, if that's you or someone you know and you're upset that I said that, item one, I don't care. And item two, read the damn flag code. Now, some members of the original outlaw country movement are still around and making wonderful music. However, in line with the idea of acting outside of established societal rules and conventions, I'd like to highlight some folks that I think are worth your attention. Well, in the, well, in contemporary country culture. The first one, it's more of a group and they are the International Gay Rodeo Association. I'll admit that I didn't know about the IGRA until a few days ago when I was doing research for this podcast and I happened to come across an article about them. And having grown up at the periphery of the rodeo and seeing the juxtaposition of this usually like hyper-masculine, like, I hate to say, uh, this hyper-masculine hyper, this hyper culture with the vibrancy of queerness, it blew my mind in a positive way. I grew up thinking that being queer was something that you did in the city, but not out in rural areas. And even though I've done my best to divest myself of that notion, seeing ferocious queens and gay cowboys and so many other diverse expressions of gender and sexuality living in a social sphere that's traditionally codified as very, very masculine, it's beautiful to me. Now, about music. Here are some shout-outs. I'd like to talk a little bit about Orville Peck. His voice. This might sound a little bit weird. Maybe it's me being autistic, but 
His voice sounds like a warm blanket for your ears. It's deep and rich and soothing, and you just kind of want to wrap yourself all up in it. His lyrics are straightforward and enjoyable, and they contain a lot of intentional queer subtext that I sure as hell wish I'd had when I was growing up. Also, if you're looking for one of the absolute best fuck you songs out there that doesn't contain the actual words, his song, Take You Back, otherwise known as the Iron Hoof Cattle Call, that is right up there. The bottom line is, is uh, if you're a rural queer or someone who grew up as one and have felt like you've never quite fit in with the country lifestyle, Orville is for you. The other musician that I'd like to mention before I head out is a non-binary artist who goes by the name of Evil. I came across their music through Orville Peck's social media and I was immediately drawn in by the dreamlike textures of banjo and steel guitar that provide a soft backdrop to Evil's drifting vocals. Now, as comforting and soothing as this might sound, a deeper dive into their lyrics reveals a look into subtle, sinister clashes between expectations and presentations of gender, especially relevant to someone who may have grown up in a religious household. This is music for people who have been wounded by people they thought were trustworthy, and by the systems that they grew up in. These are country-tinged fairy tales for people who have learned things the hard way. So far, there's an EP and a single from Evil that are all worth a listen, and I so look forward to hearing more from them. That's all I've got for you today. I'll post a reading and listening list in the episode notes if y'all are so inclined and want to see what I've been looking at for this episode. Tune in next week as I talk about the roots of the Gadsden flag and why, as a liberal tree-hugging queer, it still makes me uncomfortable as fuck. Thinking and Drinking is brought to you by a nice warm cup of ginger tea with lemon and honey. If you liked what you heard, just want to say hi, or have uh, suggestions or comments about future episodes, feel free to drop me a line at thinkdrinkpod at gmail.com. You can also find me on socials, on Instagram, and on Facebook at, you guessed it, thinkdrinkpod. Thanks for listening.